It's whenever our eyes are opened and we come to Christ, believing, devoting ourselves to him, our sins are washed away. And now for Eternal Impulsivity. Welcome to Brothers of the Word, because brother, you need the word. So yeah, it was about two days ago. I was monologuing in my room about what I was going to preach. I had a sermon idea, but it wasn't quite feeling correct. So I went through my Evernote. I was scrolling through the batches of sermon topics that I had. Nothing was sticking. I saw impulsivity. And then I looked up in my room. My eyes were drawn to this big white box that was just placed in my room. And a word on the side of it was simply eternal. So I got the water there. I love eternal water, by the way. Neither here nor there. And I decided right then and there that that kind of stuck. Eternal impulsivity. And whenever that decision came, a, a flashback came to my mind from seventh grade when I had a lot of ego. And I was in my seventh grade Bible class. And we had just gotten through a reading. And the teacher asked, do you have any comments or thoughts? And I thought, I want to sound smart. So I plagiarized. I took an idea, and I don't even remember who it was from now, so it's still plagiarism, but it was valid. And it was about the time scales of God, how God is an eternal being who has always existed, how a thousand years to God is just a day in his perspective, how he's been around for billions of years and will continue to exist, so a brief moment for God can be a lifetime or generations for us. The teacher was impressed, and that suited my ego. But today, it shows more value. The title of my sermon today is Eternal Impulsivity. Now, impulsivity, biblically, does not have a good reputation at all. Many times, it's connected to desire, and that desire is then connected to sin, and that sin is then connected to death. And as a matter of fact, there's a biblical canonical listing of the things which God hates, abominations to him. And many people, when I say that, may be thinking of the seven deadly sins. That's not actually a biblical canon. That's Catholic in origin. There's the six things that God hates, no, the seven that he abhors. And I'll be reading an ESV version if you want to follow along. When we go to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, we see them. And I want you to focus on number five, but I'm going to read them all anyway. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. Again, focus on number five. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Now, all seven of these could be preached about in a sermon. And now that I say it, I may actually do that in a future sermon. But for today, going to focus on number five, especially. Now, just to make sure that we're all on even ground about what impulsiveness actually means. Let's look at Merriam-Webster's definition. Acting or tending to act suddenly and without careful thought. Impulsiveness and hastiness, running, or in some translations, even racing to do evil, go hand in hand. Many times, just to summarize it in a very colloquial way, we do what we want, we do it. When we want to do it, we do it to the extent that we want to do it. We are the determiner of our actions in that sense. We aim to please ourselves first. See, biblically, this is something that the Lord hates, though. And I say this because it's desire. And these evil desires, since the beginning of time, have led men astray. When we look at even the very fall, we saw that Eve desired the fruit from the one tree which she could not have had. 
Now, see, if Eve wasn't impulsive, if Eve just took some time, she took time, she thought it out, maybe she counseled with Adam, maybe she sought the Lord to see, okay, you see, this serpent here makes a really good case. Can I have a fruit from the tree, please? It would have been a lot more likely that she would not have bitten. But it was impulsiveness and desire which led to sin, which led to death. Now, we see Jesus even talking about this. But before I get to that, the word talks about in Ecclesiastes 3.1, when looking at this impulsiveness, right? Because it's doing things suddenly, when we want, what we want. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Some things and some desires, simply put, won't be wrong in their time, but we do them before the time. Continuing on later in Ecclesiastes, verse 11, it states, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, and yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Simply put, what that means is we want eternity. We have a brief outlook of what eternity will entail, but we don't know the details. We don't know it all. So the first thing that I got to tell you today is trust the Lord's timing. Wait on the Lord. Because as it says, everything will be beautiful in its time. But impulsiveness is that sudden decision making. It's not waiting on the Lord. It's not seeking counsel. It's not having our thoughts being put to the test and being patient with it. It's not looking to see what does scripture say about this. It's doing what we want when we want. And when looking at this, we have two basic options for what will rule our life. Now, impulsiveness falls under the latter category. But the first one is simply God. God can rule your life or sin could rule your life. You could say righteousness could rule your life or evil could rule your life. Now, one can make a case for lukewarmness, but we all know the passage about that. Spit you out. Why couldn't you have just gone fully cold? There's two ways, good or evil, basically. And when we see what Jesus says about desires, about sin, about self-control, we see that in James 1, verses 12 through 15, he states that, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's it's fairly clear there. And I mean, in Scripture, beyond even the fall, we see it rather consistently. Why did Samson lose his hair? Because he had such a great desire for the wives who served other gods. Why did David have to have an angel of death come and reap the lives of his people? Because he had such great desire for the wife of another man. And we see this in Solomon too. Why did Esau sell his birthright? Because he was impatient, because he was being real swift with it. And he sold his birthright for a single meal. It was just a little bit of hunger. And he gave up his birthright, which he regretted going on forward. We see many examples of impulsiveness and desire breeding sin and that sin breeding death. Is going against eternity. The thing is, we see this distinction made even clearer in 1 John. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. It reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And whenever I read this scripture, I would later on start looking at various philosophies 
And there was a particular individual whose philosophy I stumbled upon yesterday was oddly fitting with this. His name is Fyodor Dostoevsky, and I just want to quote him right quick. The quote says, "Your worst sin is that you have destroyed and betrayed yourself for nothing. Your worst sin is that you have destroyed and betrayed yourself for nothing. The world it passes away. That impulsivity, you get what you want and you get it now. But what about after that?" In the grand scheme of eternity, even if you lived your very best life now, which I mean conceptually if you went to hell that would technically be correct no matter how bad your life was here, but let's just assume you lived an ideal life. You had the whole world in your hands. What about the rest of eternity? You destroyed yourself for nothing. And the thing is you may be thinking now, well, I'm stuck, pastor. Well, I suppose don't call me pastor, just call me George, but I'm stuck. You may be like me, you've had various habitual sins. You may have had sinful addictions and you've tried and you've tried to break free again and again, but every time you fall back into it. As a matter of fact, it may have felt like every time your eyes were open and thought, I need to change. And so you tried to change, but every time that you failed, you've gone back worse. As though every time you've been freed from the shackles of sin, when they come back, there's seven more of them on you. I got to tell you, it's not an immediate change. I preached this in my last sermon, but Spiritual warfare is constant. Every day, when you're not expecting it, the things that you think you're strong in, the, the enemy will hit you right there, just chipping at you for one week. They leave you alone for the next two weeks, and the next week he'll come back and he'll hit you again. You gotta always be on guard. But at the same time, I don't necessarily want you to think of this as a fight. I once went through this as well, and there was a a saying that I heard that I tried to stick by, and it really helped me. And that was that in these sinful addiction, when you're faced with it, don't fight, flee. Don't fight, flee. We're weak. I'm weak. I can say that for sure. <laughs> I failed time and time again. It took me years, literally. And then on top of that, I didn't tell nobody. Don't be me. If you have people in your corner that you know you can trust, tell them. Seek counsel. Seek wise counsel. Seek accountability. Seek other people that are like-minded and trying to break free just as you are. For me, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed, so I didn't tell anybody. I was ashamed and I was embarrassed, so I went through it alone, and it likely took me much longer than it had to because of that matter. On top of that, That's in the world. Seek the Lord in spirit. Yesterday in my study and I learned of the least asked for spiritual gift. And that least asked for spiritual gift, you could probably guess it in your head. It's suffering. Believe it or not, suffering is actually a gift in the word. I'd never heard it preached upon prior to yesterday, but it's suffering. And the thing about suffering is, the more that we do it, oftentimes the more that we cling to God. The further to our brink's end that we are, the closer to despair that we are, the more that we cry out to the Lord. It's why oftentimes you'll hear individuals that are so about God when they're down, but whenever they get lifted up, you don't hear a praise coming out of their mouth. I'm sure that we've all seen it. I mean, to an extent, I'm sure that we've all been it. In my past, that was me. In my worst period of time, I was seeking God for an hour a day, every day, and the days were just painful. And then after, I was praying for maybe five minutes or less a day. Hmm. Seek God when you flee. Whenever tempted, get out of that environment. Make sure to get in some wise counsel. Get in the word. Because what does the world tell us? The world tells us to follow our hearts. That'll keep you in addiction. What does the word tell us? The word tells us to guard our hearts. That'll get you out of addiction. Guard your hearts by planting the word upon it. All right? Amen. That's enough for a sermon right there. But (laughs) I'm going to keep it going. It's a process that lasts a lifetime. So even if you fail, I certainly won't condemn you, but I'll encourage you. Keep on fighting because you may lose a battle, but the war is yet to be won. Let's keep it on. As Romans 6 verses 20 to 23 state, and this is to an extent a word of encouragement about sin and addiction and being freed from it. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Again, we see the dichotomy. It's either or. You for God, you for the world, and for sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We see it again. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, hearing slaves to God may sound really unappealing, to be quite frank. And I can understand. I was trying to look at the Greek, see if maybe there was just another interpretation of this. It's not necessarily chattel slavery in the sense that you lose your humanity, but it's a binding. You could say a servitude of sense if you wanted a kinder word for it. But again, you either under God or you under sin. There is an in-between, but that in-between is still against God, to be quite frank. You all for him or you against him, to be quite honest. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It all comes back to the good news, right? This sanctification and this salvation, you got to be freed from something. And the thing that you are freed from be that sin nature, because by our nature, we're against God. Whenever you come to Christianity, you may have a lot of baggage with you. You may have a lot of things that you're ashamed of, your past that you just want to forget about and move on and move forward. I mean, of course, I got to tell you that God loves you anyway, because if he didn't love you, he wouldn't have sent Christ Jesus. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't have provided us a way out. If he didn't love you, we wouldn't even really be aware of, to be quite honest and blunt, how bad of people we once were. Because whenever you're in the stuff, you don't see yourself as a bad person. I had just finished watching Sandman. It's a Netflix series. One of the episodes was just about the best episode of a TV series I've ever seen in my life. And there was a particular episode about serial killers in a nightmare. And what the nightmare did was he clouded their vision and their perspective. So these people became serial murderers that had their own distinct traits. And they thought that there was nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, they viewed it as an art form. They thought it was something good. How the whole convention was praising each other's works. There were even individuals that were religious and claimed that they were serial killers for God. And then that nightmare was destroyed. And when the nightmare was destroyed, their perspectives were opened up. And just to tell you the scene as it occurred, some of them were so ashamed of what they had done that they killed themselves. Others turned themselves into the police. Others probably sought counseling. Now, of course, you don't have to go to that extreme. Why? Because whenever our eyes are opened and we come to Christ, believing, devoting ourselves to him, our sins are washed away. Nobody is perfect under heaven, but everybody can be saved by Christ. No matter how bad of a person you think you are, there is only one sin biblically that we see is unforgivable. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's not even referring to the tongue. Contextually, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit meant you know for certain, without a question of a doubt, that God was real and you still chose not to serve him. But modern day, that's probably not going to be the case. So you're probably good. Unless you have committed that form of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing in which you have done that is too much for God to forgive you and to change you. Hmm. It's beautiful. And it's a fight, but it's not fought alone. Seek that community. That's why there's so much power in church. Because you can look to the left and you can look to the right and you can see individuals that are facing similar trials to you. Whenever you are down, they can encourage you. And just as we've all been, whenever you are wrong, they can correct you. It's tough to be wrong and in an echo chamber because then you never get right. But to be wrong and in right counsel, you end up on a path of truth and correction, assuming that you're open to it. So trust God, you know, trust his word, find community, wise counsel that will correct you, so on and so forth. And worship God with prayer. It all goes back to God. I mean, sure, there's a lot of it that can be gotten out of it for us. But ultimately, it's about him, just to be straight. 
his glory. Now, I do want to tell you as you go throughout this process, as first Peter verses, well, chapter five, verses six through 11 state, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's beautiful. You can take that little word of encouragement with you as you go. You're not alone. And the word little suffering, from our perspective, that's, again, another thing that has to be scaled. Because it is fair to say a little suffering to God is most likely going to be a nightmare for us. And a little suffering to those biblical head figures is still most likely going to be a nightmare to us. You ask Job, hey, Job, what's a little suffering? You're not going to like what he says in response. But still, it's worth it. Because while we may suffer here, there's eternity to look forward to. While we may suffer here, there's that sanctification to look forward to. While it may hurt to be humble, especially whenever you're doing well, and you just want to shout, look how good I am. Those are the type of people that the Lord humbles, not exalts. (laughs) So this is my sermon today. Eternal impulsivities. Remember, trust and wait on the Lord. Seek that community and wise counsel and worship him through your prayer. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Oh, right, 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 right. I didn't open up with prayer. So let's close out with prayer. Please bow your heads for a word of prayer. Lord God, hallowed be thy name. I thank you for all that is. Lord God, I thank you that even through rocky waters, you're still with us. I thank you that even in the face of suffering, you still keep us strong. I thank you that Christ is a strong tower that we can always run to. And I thank you that even in suffering, it can be used for the good of those who love and worship you. Lord God, I pray today that you change our hearts. I'm ever reminded of the quote by Vodi Bauckham that a Christian is not someone who does things he does not want to do, but is a person who has his wants and his wishes changed. Lord God, change our hearts. Lord God, open our eyes. Lord God, every time that we fall short and fall back into sin, may we seek an audience with you. May we seek your grace ever and evermore. Father God, I pray that the Spirit will pray alongside us, guiding us in what we shall speak, guiding us in our intentions. And Father God, I pray that as you strengthen us up, we're able to strengthen our fellow brother and sister. I pray that as you guide us and give us new revelation and wisdom, that we're able to share it with the world. I pray that you are glorified and that the kingdom is brought higher and higher. I pray that more people are brought unto you, brought unto Christ, that they accept him as their Lord and their Savior, that they follow him as disciples, looking at him as the leaders of their life and not just claiming it in the words too. For Father God, it's one thing to think, it's another thing to say, it's another thing to do, and it's a final thing to remain consistent with it. I pray today that this is not just a Sunday church praise but in every day, in every hour praise. Father God, that in every moment of relief that we have, whether it's just walking in between classes of school, that we're able to look up and worship you. Father God, I pray that every day we're closer to you than we were the day before. Father God, I pray that every day we seek you ever more. I pray that we trust and depend less on man and depend more on you, Father God.
because a man cannot fill the void that is you. There's a God-shaped void that even if you stuffed the whole universe into it would not fill. Father God, you are infinite. Father God, you are more than enough. And I thank you for being God. May we lean and trust on you wholeheartedly. We pray this prayer through the precious and the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior, and in the spirit of truth, may the whole church say amen. You're dismissed, everybody. Have a wonderful week. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was the message titled Eternal Impulsivity by George Bronner. This message is number 4111. That's 4111. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4111 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to IWantToGive.com. That's IWantToGive.com. Listen to BrothersOfTheWord.com often because, brother, you need the word. Brothers of the Word.